you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 2. Sorry, Acts chapter 1. We'll go from 1 into chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, will be our text. And the title of the message this morning is Power for Proclamation. Dr. David said the theme of the service is being empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I want to begin by stating this morning that for every born-again child of God, the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is not optional. God gives His Holy Spirit to His children, to the child of God, so that we might walk empowered and live empowered in such a way that we live for God's kingdom, that we engage in God's mission as we walk through our daily lives. And we cannot live faithfully in God's mission if we are not living empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is not optional, and the Holy Spirit is necessary for the child of God to live the Christian life. And so this morning as we begin, I just kind of want to state that as, as the caveat, kind of where we're going, but also that we would keep in the back of our mind that we need God's presence by His Spirit. Last week, we saw how the good news of Jesus Christ orients our lives toward the glorious promise of the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth. And we saw that Christ's incarnation birthed the coming of the kingdom of God, and then Christ's return will consummate the kingdom of God. The apostles and the disciples of Christ were given a mission between Christ's ascension and His return. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we saw that mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will do something. You will be my witnesses. And so this is where we said the church enters the narrative of Christ's work. His redemptive mission in the world. This is where life intersects with mission for God's people. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we are to live for Christ. So I want to invite you to look with me in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26, as we read together. But before I read the text, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we read your word, would you open our eyes to see truth? Lord, would you illumine our minds by your Holy Spirit's presence? God, would you teach us? If there are any in here this morning who don't have your Holy Spirit's presence in their life, would you reveal to them their sin and their need of a Savior? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 15, Acts chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers... The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the field and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. So this is Judas, was fallen headlong and burst open. For it was written in the book of Psalms, it is written in the book of Psalms, 
may his camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, or you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This morning, I think one of the things we see in this first scene is that faithful living is equal to waiting on God. Faithful living is equal to waiting on God. I want to show you what I mean. There's, there's one sense in which verses 15 through 26 represents the common or the ordinary time of our lives. That is to say, it's the, the in-between time, right? The time of, of watching and the time of waiting. It's the time concerned with praying and discerning, but also the time concerned with faithful living. And for the apostles, it's the time between Christ's ascension and receiving the promised Holy Spirit from the Father. And as we, the church, enter the narrative of Acts, we enter this time of waiting. In some ways, like the apostles, like the disciples, they're, they're there in the upper room or they're there waiting on the Spirit of God to come as God the Father has promised. And now we too find ourselves, though clothed with the Holy Spirit of God, waiting for the imminent return of Christ. We're not waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now we, we live between Christ's giving of His Spirit and His imminent return. And so our waiting is for Christ's glorious return. And this means our mission, it's the, same, it's the same as the apostles. Our mission is an extension of the apostles' mission, uh, mission. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he gives this mission, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth or the ends of the earth. This mission that's given to the apostles is the mission that's also given to us. So I want to note three ways that the apostles live out faithfulness to God in the midst of their waiting. And I think these three ways are applicable for you and I. They're implications for our lives as we're in the midst of this waiting for Christ's return. So first, they let Scripture inform their activity. We see this in verses 15 through 20. But I want you to notice that waiting does not mean inactivity. You know, in our day and age, we associate the word waiting as a bad thing, right? We don't want to go to the DMV and take a number and have to wait. I mean, that's a pain, right? We don't want to sit in the red light and have to wait through three cycles because somebody was on their phone, right? That really inconveniences us. Waiting is seen as a negative and a bad thing. But I want to kind of turn that this morning and help us to see that what the apostles and what the disciples are demonstrating is that Waiting is not always a bad thing. In fact, waiting on God is equal to faithful living. 
And faithful living is equal to waiting on God. Because waiting doesn't mean inactivity. It doesn't mean doing nothing. Instead, here's what waiting means. Waiting means living in concert with the truth of God's word. Living in concert with the truth of God's word. That's what waiting on God means. So it doesn't mean inactivity. Waiting on God means we trust God enough that we live according to his word and we depend upon him to carry out his word and bring his word to fruition in his time. And so we want to, to place our lives and we live our lives in such a way that, that we're being faithful to God's word. And so the apostles were eager to follow God's command. So Peter stands up and he speaks to the 120 gathered disciples and he cites Psalm 69, 25 as being prophetically fulfilled in the death of Judas. Look at verse 20. May his camp be desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Right? And then he goes on to, to cite Psalm 109, 8 as a prophetic command that they must now follow. Let another take his office. So the point that I think we need to see is that the apostles were obedient to the word of God. And so what did they do? They selected two men who met the qualifications for apostleship. They weren't looking for any more signs. They were simply being obedient to that which they knew to be God's revealed truth. So I think the takeaway here, the implication is, believer, if we're to walk in God's way, first, we must know God's truth. This is why we work diligently to teach and preach God's word corporately, to teach through Sunday school, to teach through equipping classes, to to preach expositionally. But it, it, it also needs to translate into our personal devotional lives, doesn't it? So that individually... We are spending time praying God's word as Don Whitney taught us, reading through scripture, studying the scripture. One of the reasons that we give Sunday school books to everyone who attends a Sunday morning Bible study hour is is so that during the week they can have something kind of to help guide and, and teach and instruct and help them prepare for learning God's word and sitting together as a body corporately to learn God's word. You know, one of the ways I think this is illustrated, even in the book of Acts itself, is in Acts chapter 17, we find Paul kind of in a waiting period. Paul is in Athens, of all places, waiting. Great place to be waiting, right? Paul's in Athens, and he's waiting on Timothy and waiting on Silas to arrive in Athens. And in Athens, and in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says that Paul began to teach and he began to preach. Now, I'll submit to you that While he's waiting on Silas and Timothy to get there, his friends, his partners in ministry, that he could have said, I'm just going to kind of wait over here. I'm going to take in the sites. I mean, Olympic Stadium is in Athens, so he could have gone there. He could have gotten some Greek food, right? He could have just kind of chilled out, maybe watched Netflix in the meantime while he's waiting on something to happen, right? And so, no, instead what we find Paul doing is we find Paul preaching and teaching, walking through the square, And he sees an inscription to the unknown God and his heart burns within him. And he begins to preach God's word. And he says, he addresses the people. And he says, I know you to be a very religious people. And I come to you to talk to you today about this unknown God. He is the one that I've come. And then he begins to to preach God's word. Instead of sitting, doing nothing as he's waiting, he's living out God's word. He's 
faithfully carrying out God's word. You see what we mean by waiting on the Lord. They let scripture inform their activity. We also should allow and let and submit to scripture to inform our activity, believer, brother and sister in Christ. How is scripture informing your activity? How is scripture informing our daily lives? Well, the second way they lived out faithfulness to God while waiting was they they employed an element of common sense. They they acted with common sense. Now, I don't want to be overly pragmatic here, but I think it's important that we see this. God's word wasn't ambiguous for the disciples, for the apostles. They were convinced of God's command and they said, how do we need to go about doing this? How do we need to carry this command out, right? Verses 21 through 23. So one of the men who had accompanied us during the time of the Lord Jesus uh, went in and out among us. That, that's the qualification. Uh, verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. Uh, one of these men must become with us, a witness to the resurrection. So they said, all right, we've got two men. And they put these two men forward. So not being overly pragmatic here, but also understanding that, that there's a common sense to what they're doing. And they're, they are praying and asking God for wisdom. So there, there are two points of clarification. First, they knew God's word, so it wasn't worldly wisdom leading them. It was godly wisdom, which shaped and formed them by the truth of God's word. So first, God's word was planted within, right? I mean, scripture was, scripture was informing their activity. But secondly, I think the distinction for us today, I would add for the believer, is that the Spirit of God gives us common sense in some ways, applies God's word, that we, we are to have a kind of a spirit-directed common sense. We aren't blindly following God's word. We've been empowered. Scripture teaches that our minds are illuminated by the Holy Spirit to live out and to understand God's word. And so how do we how do we do this? Well, we, we turn to God in prayer. We read God's word. We ask God to reveal his truth to us. We do this in prayer, seeking to know God. And here's how we here's how we know God. We know God by turning to his word. And so as we turn to God's word, we ought to expect that God's going to answer that God's going to teach us that God's going to illumine our minds to know his will, to know his way. Oftentimes, believers approach God saying, saying things like, I don't know if it's your will for me to do this. I don't know if it's your will for me to, to share the gospel with people in my community in this way. Or, God, I don't know if, if, if it's your will for me to go on this mission trip. Or, or, I don't know if it's your will for me to make disciples of all nations. Now, I know you wouldn't say that because that's scripture, right? It sounds ludicrous. But in essence... Isn't that what we're saying by coming up with excuse after excuse to avoid doing what God has called us to do? We say things like, God, if, if you just show me a sign. Then I'll know that it's your will for me to do this. We kind of throw the fleece out there, right? Like Gideon. The reason that this is silly, it's because God's word is clear about the Christian's witness of the gospel. God's word is clear. Your daily life, Christian, is where God wants to work through you to advance his kingdom. His mission is lived out in your vocation. His mission is lived out in your neighborhood, in your home, through your local gathering with the church. God's mission is lived out through his people in our daily lives. This is where life intersects mission, right? Every day, living for Christ. 
they acted with common sense. Believer, there's some non-negotiables that God's word conveys to us, teaches us, commands of us. Number one, we must have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us before we can ever begin to live out these commands of God because he empowers us to live faithfully for God. Well, thirdly, they prayed. They prayed. We would expect this of the apostles. In fact, we saw them in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, right? Together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. But then we also find in in verse 24, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. You know, one of the characteristic traits Jesus taught his disciples about prayer was perseverance. The disciples, the apostles, didn't stop seeking God once they figured out the next step. They didn't stop seeking God because he he already knew the answer. In fact, that's what they said in verse 24. God, you already know the plan. You've got it figured out. You know, Lord, you know their hearts, right? God knows our hearts. This is the truth of his word. God knows our hearts as he knew Matthias and Bersabbas. Our justice. And so they pray, Lord, show us which one you've chosen. Now, the next verse, I don't recommend you employing verse 26 in your life to cast lots in order to determine God's will. They drew lots. This was a way of trusting in God's sovereignty, an Old Testament practice. In fact, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so we no longer draw lots or cast lots because we're now guided by the Holy Spirit in discerning the will of God. We have God's word to direct us and his spirit to fill us and empower us. And so we don't act in the same way, but our prayer nonetheless needs to be the same where we're trusting in God. In the midst of faithful living, we are waiting on God. We are praying. And so I want to submit to you that waiting on God looks like Active obedience to God's word so that we walk in God's ways. Waiting on God looks like depending on the Holy Spirit to give us discernment regarding how we might walk in God's ways. And waiting on God looks like praying for his will to come to pass and living our lives in surrender to his will over our own. The result of waiting on God and living faithfully is that God never misses accomplishing His will and His work through His people. God never misses accomplishing His will and His work through His people. So in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, the second scene, here comes the boom, is what the second scene, is what I've called the second scene. The word Pentecost... It's a familiar word to many of us today. But it's not familiar because of the Jewish celebration or even because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. I think more so it's familiar to us because of the Pentecostal denomination. But the Pentecostal denomination does not have, uh, does not have a, a ownership over the word Pentecost. Pentecost has its roots in Jewish celebration. The word Pentecost means 50th. And it was the 50th day after Passover. 
the day where God gave His law to Moses on Mount Sinai, Israel commemorated this day by gathering for an agricultural celebration where farmers would bring in their crops, the first fruits of their crop, as an offering to God. And so this was couched in a big celebration, a festival. And part of the reason for bringing their first fruits to God was to be thankful. It was, it was showing thankfulness to God. But then it was also a sense of prayer, praying and trusting and asking God to cause their crops to flourish. Now, for the first century Jew, Passover, Pentecost, uh, these were just Luke's writing in such a way that it's just assumed that we understand this significance. And Passover and Pentecost were significant because it was a reminder of God's faithfulness to provide not only the Passover lamb that delivered Israel from bondage to Egypt and bondage to slavery, but also to provide substance for his people to live. It was about God giving his redeemed people a way of life by which they now can carry out and live according to his purposes. And so this is the rich context in which the Holy Spirit comes. This is the rich context in which God, on his timetable, in verses 1 and 2, suddenly sends the Holy Spirit to fill and empower his disciples for gathering the harvest of the kingdom of God. And so look with me in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, unified in one place, waiting. And suddenly, verse 2, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 2 says, suddenly there came from heaven this sound like a mighty rushing wind. Verse 6 tells us this sound was so significant that it drew crowds together. I mean, this was an incredible sound, an incredible occurrence. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Luke's imagery in verse 3 is rich as well. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. One commentator said, the wild and fire, uh, the wind and fire are wild, untamable forces. You know, the incredible power of the Holy Spirit on that day rushed into their presence and filled the apostles and the disciples gathered there. If you think back to last week and Jesus' emphasis on the kingdom of God, while he spoke with his disciples, there was this, this awesome thing that, that, that happened in the midst of his teaching them, and even now that has come to fulfillment, and that is the Holy Spirit has come down. And it's incredible, it's incredible to realize just what has happened. Jesus being bodily resurrected and representing true humanity has now reunited with the Father in God's space. And now he sends the power of heaven, his Holy Spirit, into man's space. And, and all of this is working to a culmination of the kingdom of God. When Christ will return and heaven and earth will be as one. And man will dwell in God's space and God in man's space together as one new creation. We see that in Revelation chapter 21. And so, 
God the Father sends the power of heaven, sends his Holy Spirit down into man's space, into man's life to dwell with man. And the work of reunifying heaven and earth is continuing. And the apostles now will move forward with God's redemptive mission, advancing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 6. And so the jump between verses 4 and 6 is really almost seamless. The Holy Spirit fills them. And they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Consider Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 speaks similarly about God's writing his law on our hearts. And the profound point that Luke wants us to understand is that God by his spirit is now coming down again. But not with written law carved on tablets of stone, but now with a transforming power of God's written law upon human hearts by His Holy Spirit. The profound impact of the day of Pentecost is now God doesn't just dwell with men, He dwells in man. And He transforms us from the inside out. And so Pentecost is about the new work that God is doing Pentecost is about the the fresh wind of God's power sweeping through our lives and transforming us from lifeless people into disciples whose hearts are set afire and on fire by the love of God for our fellow humanity. This is the hope. This is the hope of God's Spirit dwelling within us. This is the empowerment that the disciples are are sent sent on mission to proclaim. So the truth of Scripture is that God desires to give His Holy Spirit to all who ask Him. Listen to Luke eleven thirteen, what Jesus told His disciples. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Believer, let me echo again. God doesn't intend you to go the Christian life alone. God has provided richly, He's provided abundantly for you to live empowered and full of the Holy Spirit so that you might proclaim the hope of resurrection to an unbelieving world. And this is how we make disciples and evangelize our neighbors, our our homes. This is how we evangelize in our vocations. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. The community aspect of our Connect 365 vision as a church, it involves our witness to the world. Daily, we should be seeking God's presence. As Psalm 105.4 says, seek the Lord and His strength. Seek the Lord continually. We should be seeking the Holy Spirit's leading. Not living as if God's presence is simply understood. As if, well, we're in the same room. We're under the same, same roof as God's presence. But He's in another room. Right? No, no, we need to be living as such that we are engaging and, and interacting and actively living, walking in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, do you know the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your daily life? It, it may not look like Acts chapter 2, verse 
4 where they began to speak in tongues. But do you know the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? The certainty and the assuredness that the Spirit of God gives his children? The boldness that the Spirit of God gives his children to live for him? The strength to overcome temptation and to battle that the Spirit of God gives to us? The third scene that we encounter this morning and the final scene is in verses 5 through 13 of chapter 2. And this is the message. This is the message that the apostles, the disciples, and the church are to be about carrying to the world. It's the reverse of the curse. The reverse of the curse. In verses 5 through 8, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each each of us in his own native language? In 2011, we were on a trip to Uganda working with Pastor George in Bugiri. There was a tribe of unreached cowherders. I think I've mentioned this tribe before. They were named the Karamoja or the Karamajong. And they were living on the outskirts of the village. And Bugari Baptist Church, had, they had some success evangelizing their children. But the ministry to the Karamoja people was very hard because the Karamoja people were poor and they were known as thieves, often stealing cattle from other cattle farmers. They began educating Bulgaria Baptist Church began educating the children during, um, during the course of that prior year. And, and when we arrived, our team from Crosspoint uh, arrived, and then from First Baptist Church of Pollock, where I was before, when we arrived, we, went, we were brought into the settlement of the Karamoja, a place that Pastor George had never even been before. And we went there, and they gave us an audience, and then we were able to preach the gospel. And as we preached the gospel that day to the Karamoja people for the first time, the gospel went from English to Lugandan to another language, then to a fourth language, which was about 80 to 90 percent accurate and similar to the dialect of the Karamoja people. On the day of Pentecost, there were no interpreters. On the day of Pentecost, what happened? as the apostles and disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, is that they began speaking because the Spirit of God gave them utterance. And the men, women, gathered from every nation, every tribe, were there in Jerusalem to worship God. And upon hearing what was happening, they were hearing the gospel, the works of God being proclaimed in their own tongue and in their own language. You see, the Holy Spirit gave utterance and filled the uneducated Galileans' mouths with words from heaven and opened the ears of every tribe gathered to hear the gospel in their own native tongue. And they were hearing about these mighty works of God. They were hearing about the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his power to overcome death for the life of the world. 
You see, the point of Pentecost is not that we should, re- we should have a repeat of, of tongues that happened at Pentecost every time we go to a different people group that has a different language than ours. The point of Pentecost is that Christ's ministry broke down a dividing wall that sin had erected. Christ's ministry ushered in, His Holy Spirit ushered in the restoration of true humanity. Genesis 11, 1-9. The pride and rebellion against God from his people caused God to confuse. It provoked God to confuse the language of the people and to separate and scatter them across the land. And from this point forward in the Old Testament narrative, we have the birth of of many nations. And it's known as the curse of Babel. The curse of Babel was a a disunifying work of the human race. It was a disuniting work of the human race. But here at Pentecost, the curse of Babel is overturned so that the whole of the human race will hear the good news of Jesus Christ through the powerful Holy Spirit-inspired proclamation of Christ's resurrection. This is the big picture of what's happening on this day at Pentecost. And Luke is so careful to make certain that we understand this, that in verse 5 he says, devout men from every nation under heaven, Jews and proselytes alike, those who had converted to Judaism. And in verses 9 through 11, he gives us the list of who those people were, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What was God doing? God was expanding his kingdom. God was reunifying humanity. God was correcting a sin and a curse that happened at the fall of Adam and Eve and then was exacerbated by the problem of pride and rebellion at Babel. Paul fleshes this thought out in Ephesians 2. He says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And that by the blood of Christ, Jew and Gentile have been made into one new man. This is through the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And through Christ, the believer has now been given the right to enter into God's presence. And has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out Christ's redemptive mission in the world. And so what was God up to? with these apostles, with this band of uneducated men, these disciples, he was at work changing the world. Because of Christ, all things are being made new. That work began with Christ's incarnation, continued with his ascension, and will ultimately be consummated at his return. God's desire is for the gospel to reach all nations, every ethnic group, every linguistic group. God's desire is for the gospel to break down barriers. Barriers between the races, barriers between ethnicities, 
in our culture where racial tensions can run high. This is the hope of Christ for a fallen world, for a divided humanity. In Christ, there's one new man. The kingdom of God does not see African-American, Mexican-American, white American, Filipino, or Cuban, or Haitian, or Asian, or Korean, or so on and so forth. The kingdom of God sees one new man, the child of God, a re-establishing of the human race, a unity, a unity in God's people. The cause of sin, or the curse of sin, is division, it's hatred. But the reversal through Christ is unity and peace. So I'd like this morning for us to consider how we would respond to God's word. Are you living faithfully by feasting on God's word? Are you living faithfully by by walking in his redemptive mission? Are you actively praying for the salvation of a person in your life? Are you praying for discernment to know how to share the gospel with that person? Are you living a spirit-filled life, being bold in your proclamation and knowing the power of heaven at work through you in the lives of those around you? Are you proclaiming the message of Christ's resurrection, bringing the peace of Christ to those whom God has given you an audience with and given you responsibility for? Does this describe our lives, church? Does this describe our Holy Spirit filling? Do you know this peace of Christ? Do you know the forgiveness of sin and payment of sin debt before God? Has God made you new? Have you been born again through the blood of Jesus Christ? Or are you trying to live a good moral life, hoping to gain heaven by your good works? I want to challenge you this morning to come before God transparently asking God how he is desiring to work in your life wanting wanting to be transformed wanting to be filled with the Holy Spirit wanting to be empowered by his spirit to take his mission throughout the world from everyday sphere to all nations Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would take this, your word, guide us and instruct us, direct our thoughts, direct our our minds, God, and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Do a work in us, God, and through us, we pray, corporately as your people, but also individually as we enter the workplace, as we live out your gospel, we pray that you would give us endurance and strength to faithfully live it out in our, in our neighborhoods and in our homes, in our marriages. And we pray, Father, that you would be exalted in our lives and that you would strengthen us and empower us for this righteous way of living. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?